Hi, I'm F. Paul Driscoll, Editor-in-Chief of Opera News. Please join us for the next events in our fascinating live interview series, The Singer's Studio. At the top of this season, we will be joined by two fantastic young American singers, baritone Quinn Kelsey on Tuesday, October 9th, and bass baritone Christian Van Horn on Wednesday, November 14th. Both interviews will begin at 6 p.m. in the Samuel B. and David Rose Building at Lincoln Center. For tickets, visit opranews.com slash singersstudio or call 212-769-7028. See you there. From the can-can to armies of singing soldiers, French operatic traditions have been delighting audiences for centuries. This season at the Met is full of the best that French opera has to offer. Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, an opera boot camp introduction to French operatic style. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. From Lully to Rameau, Bizet to Berlioz, Massenet to Messiaen, French composers have given us some of the most beautiful and important works in the operatic canon. What makes French opera so unique and special? What are the musical highlights we should listen for and the operatic conventions that set these works apart? I'm Stuart Holt, and on this episode, we have Guild lecturer and my podcast co-host, Naomi Baratera, in an excerpt from our recent sold-out series, Opera Bootcamp, an introduction to French opera. Welcome back. Thank you for coming back after such a quick lunch. Now we get to shift gears from Donizetti, and we get to dive in to looking at the life and times of Georges Bizet. So just a quick mini-review of what we covered this morning. Into the Romantic Era is where our operas of today tend to fall with the bel canto composers in the first half, and then French Grand Opera and French Opera Comique that we're going to see more of in this session kind of is right in the middle. It straddles the beginning of half of the century and the second half of the century. So you have composers like Sasson, we're going to talk about him next week. Meyer Beer, we're going to learn about a little bit about him today. We're going to talk about the life of Bizet and the different things he worked on, the influencers that really contributed to the operas he wrote, one of whom was Charles Gounod, Romeo and Juliet, Faust, those operas. So this is where we are living for the afternoon, is in this time period. Now, just to review two terms that we have come across already, French Grand Opera is a style that is sung throughout in five acts, usually. It's a grandiose in conception, impressively staged, requiring enormous performance forces. It has elements drawn from the tragedy en musique, so a very usually noble story, serious subject matter, 
but you pair that with a taste for over-the-top scenery and very, very dramatic narratives that unfold before your eyes, and then you get a kind of larger-than-life theatrical experience if you go to a French grand opera. We didn't talk about Meyerbeer this morning, but it's really important that we touch on him now because Meyerbeer was hugely influential in French opera in the Romantic period and in the French composers like Bizet actually finding their own style and their own voice instead of just importing everything from Italy. The opera that kind of changed the tide of everything and really made a huge impact was Robert le Diable, which we actually rarely see performed on this side of the ocean. How many of you have ever seen a performance of Robert le Diable in North America? Oh, one person. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Here I got really excited. But I know it has come to the Royal Opera, Covent Garden, lately. And it's definitely done in France more often than anywhere else. But this is really important because Maya Beer basically showed composers and audiences what was possible with different theatrical conventions that really connected with French theater conventions and French tastes and French storytelling and also fed this extreme desire for the fantastical theatrical experience that audiences had. It was premiered on November 21st, 1831. So it, this is actually before Donizetti imports La Fille du Regiment. And it is said that Frédéric Chopin the pianist and composer, was in the audience and was so wowed by everything that he heard and that he saw that he said, if ever magnificence was seen in the theater, I doubt it reached the level of splendor shown in Robert. It is a masterpiece. Meyerbeer has made himself immortal. So very high praise. And it kind of traveled from that point really quickly to opera houses all over the world in the early and up until the early 19th century, where then it kind of peters off. And in the last 100 years, we haven't really seen it that much, but it's starting to, to come back a little bit. Now, what was it about this opera that everyone loves so much? You might find this funny today, but the ballet of the nuns was hugely influential. This is a painting of a performance of Robert Le Diable at the Paris Opera. And you can see that there's this bluish pale light that is coming in because in this scene, there's actually nuns that are ghostly rising out of their graves. All right. So this is plays into the fantastic, the otherworldly. And the set designers managed to figure out how to cast light in all of these different angles. And audiences had never seen a lighting design like this before, and it completely blew them all away. So that was one of the reasons why Robert Le Diablo was so fantastic for people. But there's also a lot more to it that had kind of long-ranging influences. So because this came to the Royal Opera very, very recently in Covent Garden, Laurent Pelly, who is a director, if you saw Cendrillon this past season at the Met, he did the design for Cendrillon, he was the director behind the production that came to the Royal Opera. And there's a video where he talks about, along with other cast members, the legend of Robert Le Diable and the importance of it, the influence that it had. So this is about five minutes long, but I think 
it kind of summarizes a lot of different threads that even if you can't ever see this opera anytime soon performed live, you'll get a taste of the importance of it in history in many different ways. So here is members of the cast and creative team from the Royal Opera production talking about this work. I think what Mayor Beard did with this opera was really create a blueprint uh, for French Romantic opera. All the greatest composers, they all came for the premiere. And Chopin went 30 times, and then Liszt wrote these beautiful variations of the last air d'Isabelle. And they had this great exchange of the ideas. I think it's influenced opera a great deal. It was the first big French opera hit. Many, many composers, even if they didn't do it on purpose, or they just, you know, kind of subliminally soaked it in because that was the way things were going anyway. Having the orchestra as its own character and telling the story along with, and the spectacle in the moment. It's the same archetype. In the ballet, they became virgins, of course, but, but it's always that sort of ghostly woman. And it's a very, it's a very romantic, overly typical figure. Of you know of yeah Giselle and then Sylphide and all those white act ballets that they have you know which is always very nice and clean and and, and um, positive uh, in a way and the ballet never goes that far but opera is a little more daring in that sense that it can bring situations that is a little a little more awkward or or <laughs> perverted in a way. <laughs> Meyerbeard, I think he was pushing the envelope technically of what singers could do. It's not just the range, but the range is is great. I mean, over two octaves for the tenor, which is and and even greater for the bass and and the other sopranos. But I mean, it's uh, you know a good note or two higher than I am called to sing in regular standard rap. <laughs> The character of Bertram, it's got, uh, I think, the largest musical range of any role that I've looked at. It goes from a low E-flat all the way up to a high F-sharp. And um, I have not seen other roles that, that have this span. And, and likewise, I think, with the other roles, because of their, they're similarly very rangy uh, and also very uh, strong mixtures of very lyric type of voice with a dramatic kind, all kind of wrapped up into one singer. So it's... Part of the reason I would imagine that it's done so rarely, uh, if ever, you know, is that it's hard to find the cast. So it's the quintessential example of the first hit of French grand opera that had any kind of international success. And then the other major genre that we touched on this morning, we're going to hear more about this afternoon, is opera comique. We have the company that was formed by a bunch of tiny theater troops that then came together in 1714. And they defined through their work the genre that we call opera comique, which essentially means that there is vocal music and instrumental music, but it began as being interspersed with spoken dialogue. Later that gets erased and recitative replaces it all. And even though the word or the essential popular appeal was the antithesis of tragedy en musique and French grand opera. That's kind of where it sprung from. That doesn't mean it always had to be happy, right? The word comique doesn't mean that it has to be comic. 
It comes from this idea of reflecting human concerns of French society at the time. A lot of the time they had happy endings. A lot of the time there were comic elements, but it wasn't like a rule that you had to apply to any opera comique you ever created. So enter Georges Bizet. Bizet might have been the most popular composer of the French Romantic era if he had not died so young. He only lived to be 36 years old and his death was rather sudden and he really didn't gain any kind of traction or popularity with the public until he died. And so that's why today's subject title is Georges Bizet and his posthumous successes because he didn't really get to live into a time where he saw his operas become popular. So his parents, to give you a sense of his roots, were very musical. Um, his father came from a very artistic family in the area of Rouen in France and he also was a hairdresser and a wig maker, his father was, and then in 1837 he married a singing teacher and so Bizet's mother would have been singing from the time Bizet was in the womb. His father also dabbled in composing a little bit. He had a few published things, but nothing really that's uh, had any kind of staying power. His brother-in-law knew Gluck, who was a composer um, in the classical era. So there was a lot of kind of artistic ties. Bizet's mother was his first music teacher, and she probably taught him how to play piano as well. And this is really important because Bizet before he ever really had notions of being a composer, he was kind of like the Lang Lang of the Paris Conservatoire at the time. He was this incredible virtuoso pianist and a wonderful performer and won awards for his solo piano performing before he ever really turned his attention to composing. So he was enrolled at the Paris Conservatoire. He took lessons there and he became known for the prizes that he won. He was also a great sight reader on the piano. So you could put any piece of music in front of him and he could play it as if he had been practicing it for months at sight. So while he's at the Paris Conservatoire, there's a few people that he comes in contact with that are really important. He was very strongly connected with Gounod. So Bizet once said about Gounod or said to Gounod, you were the beginning of my life as an artist. I spring from you. So that's pretty serious. That's a strong connection. And a substantial correspondence between the two of them survives. We know that they were strongly connected throughout Bizet's life. In 1857, Bizet won the Prix de Rome. This is a very big prize at this time that essentially gave you five years of fully funded life as a composer where the only thing you had to do was submit one composition a year to the committee to prove that you were practicing your craft. Other than that, you had a full, it's like a fellowship package and you had free room and board for the first two to three years at the Villa Medici in Italy, in Rome, where you could just meet other people and go see different works performed and talk to other artists. It was like living in an artist's commune where you had fully funded entertainment for the whole time and food and board the whole time you lived there. So he won this very prestigious prize with a cantata that sounded like this. 
So he wins the Prix de Rome with this cantata. Shortly before he won this, he actually premiered his second opera called Le Docteur Miracle. And you would have thought that this kind of put him on the road to stardom, but Le Docteur Miracle was not the biggest success. But he won the Prix de Rome. He went to Rome for a few years. He composed almost nothing. But when he gets back to Paris, he really needs to start making some progress, and he's not really making a lot of headway in opera or in any kind of industry. So he kind of takes a side job working for publishers, transcribing the music of other composers and working on the kind of grunt work of turning things into scores of different kinds. He also gives piano lessons, and he taught at the conservatoire for a couple of years. Then he starts tinkering again with a work called Don Procopio, which was supposedly his attempt at an Italian opera buffa style. And he entered it into a competition to try and get some publicity, and apparently it did pretty well, but it didn't really get any staging or any contract to bring it to an opera theater. Then from there, he ends up trying a couple of other things. He wants to write an opera on Don Quixote. He wants to write an opera on the story of Esmeralda. He wants to write an opera on the, the singer, the Nuremberg singers, much like Wagner's Die Meistersinger. So he starts all of these tiny little projects, and then he never really follows through. And then he starts, Bizet starts putting feelers out to try and get work. He wants to get composing work, not publishing work. And so he gets a commission from the Théâtre Lyrique. And remember, the Théâtre Lyrique was the place like the city opera of the time, where they could take a chance on a completely unknown composer who only had a few abandoned projects and one big prize. And that was what brought us Pearl Fishers. And he composed it extremely quickly in the summer of 1863. And because he had to compose it so fast, he actually pillaged a lot of his earlier music to bring it into the score so that he could turn it out quickly. And it had 18 performances, which was a respectable number, but Bizet thought it was a complete failure. And the press was pretty hard on him. And actually, one very scathing review said that the libretto was completely absurd and that the score was noisy and offensive. That's what the, the press said about it. However, the man who ran the Teatro Lyrique, Leon Carvalho, he didn't really seem to think it was that bad of a flop. And he thought, no, 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 no. I'm not going to abandon Bizet as a composer just because Pearl Fishers had only a lukewarm reception. I want another opera from him. So he invites him to compose an opera on Ivan IV. And then it goes nowhere. It doesn't really happen. And instead of having Ivan IV premiered, uh, Carvalho drops in some works from Gounod. So Bizet's whole... Uh, project kind of falls by the wayside. Even though Carvalho didn't like Ivan IV, the little bits that he heard, he said, no, 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 I really want another opera by Bizet. I believe in him. He can do something. He can do something amazing. So he commissions another work, and that is on a story called The Fair Maid of Perth. So, and it was supposed to actually, The Fair Maid of Perth was supposed to be the big opera that was shown during the 1867 Exposition Universelle in Paris. That's been like hundreds of countries revisiting Paris for the big World's Fair. 
And because it wasn't doing that well, Carvalho said, eh, we're not going to do that one. Gounod's Romeo and Juliet is going to be dropped in instead. And we all know how that went because we still hear Romeo and Juliet today, right? So his finances were doing horribly. However, he was in love with the daughter of his composition teacher, Fromental Halevi, and so he wants to marry Genevieve Halevi. And initially, since by this point in time, Fromental had passed away, the family said, you are a penniless composer, there is no way that we're going to let her marry you. And so they actually had to kind of fight it out and get married, like run off to the courthouse kind of marriage in order to make it happen because her family was so against it. Then he gets a commission from the Opera Comique, and this is for Carmen. So this Carmen, the opera, is based on a very popular novel by Prosper Merame, and the novel came out in 1845, and it was actually Bizet's own suggestion that they create an opera based on this source material, but the theater was a little bit dubious about how this was going to go because Carmen has a very violent death at the end of the story, and that was just something you didn't do on stage at that time. And so even though we have not that much information about the compositional process, we know the kind of public reaction to this, and we know a little bit about the cast. So we know that Celestine Gallimari was the mezzo-soprano who created the role of Carmen, and she was apparently a knockout, like just mesmerizing in the role of Carmen. And we know that Bizet likely was having an affair with her at this time, and his marriage with Genevieve was not on great footing. So there was a lot of gossip about that going around. And then we also know that the actual premiere was quite a scandal, and it was considered a failure when it first hit the stage. So there were a lot of objections from the orchestra who found Bizet's scoring a little bit strange. The chorus didn't like what they were asked to do. The women in the chorus objected to being asked to smoke and fight on stage. We'll talk about this a bit more. Um, but it was something that they kind of pushed ahead with Bizet's vision. And also the leaders of the Opera Comique wanted him to change the ending so that Carmen was murdered off stage. And as we will see, that is not what ends up happening. She is murdered on stage. And so all of these things cause quite the upset. It ran for 45 performances, and then three more the following year, but it was overall not well received. So why was this such a problem? Why was Carmen such a problem? As one scholar said, not only was Carmen a woman, but she was a revolutionary who in no way attempted to hide the fact that she could not be trusted. She took an upstanding military man and brought him so low that he committed the ultimate crime, all accompanied by song and dance. The crowds and critics' wariness of her came as no coincidence as they wished such figures as soldiers to be dependable and trustworthy, but saw their supposed cultural incarnation of virtue brought down by a marginalized seductress. So apparently Tchaikovsky was at one of the performances and he loved the work. He loved Gallimore singing Carmen, but he said that it was perhaps 
going to take the French public a while to come to terms with it. So other things that are part of this opera that are difficult for or make it scandalous and difficult for audiences of the time, there's a lot of voyeurism, there's tension between the bourgeois ideal with Michaela and the exotic other with Carmen. The distance between the us versus them kind of separating the different types of characters in this work. And then there's also what we call a lot of nested symmetries. So if you're really into musical uh, analysis, you can talk about the different symmetrical things in the work. But to kind of summarize it, you have music that makes Michaela and Don Jose sound like they belong together in the same sound world. And it's like the romantic French heart-throbbing, sumptuous music. And then you have Carmen and Escamillo who get all of these very exotic-sounding music, different dances, different types of percussion that hint that they're from some exotic, far-off place. But yet you have some kind of love connection or lust connection that is happening between Carmen and Don Jose, even though they're from completely different worlds. And this was a very difficult thing for audiences at the time to get behind. But Bizet, in his defense, said, as a musician, I tell you that if you were to suppress adultery, fanaticism, crime, evil, the supernatural, there would no longer be the means for writing one note. <laughs> so how, what happened to Bizet from here? Soon after opening night, he suffered a reoccurrence of Quincy, which had afflicted him before. It's a throat problem. And he had, was pretty depressed about how Carmen had been so poorly received. He had battled, we think, rheumatism and pain in his ears and throat for a few years leading up to this. And then he decided to go for a swim in the Seine. And it gave him a heart attack and a rheumatism attack. And he died from his reaction to this swim in the Seine compiled with his ongoing medical problems. And all of this happened right around the time that audiences were starting to warm up to Carmen. It was just beginning to take off, and then he dies. And that kind of tweaked people's interest in the work, because they're like, ooh, who is this composer who died right after his scandalous opera went on stage? And so that started to give it legs, and then it became more and more popular in and grew over time. So in the rest of our time, what I'm going to do is instead of kind of pointing out the highlights of Carmen and then the highlights of Pearl Fishers, I wanted us to talk about some conventions of romantic French opera that began with Meyerbeer that we have in Gounod, but that we have excellent examples of in the music of these two operas. And so what are the different things that make these operas quintessentially French? What are the techniques that they're using? What are the different themes that we find? That type of thing. And so I compiled about eight or nine conventions that we're going to see examples of from both Carmen and Pearl Fishers. We'll get through as much as we can. And then those conventions will come back next week in the morning and afternoon as well. So there's a few general things. In French opera in the Romantic period, there are often choruses with dancing and rejoicing. There's often scenes where there's a dialogue between an individual and that chorus. We're going to see some examples of that. There's often a dramatic entrance of the hero, and there's introductory arias for the characters. There is 
often elaborate stage sets. We've covered this and a taste for the exotic. At this time period, even though there's a lot of political upheaval in France, there's also kind of an expanding empire where France is colonizing other places, right? By 1830, France had invaded and began to conquer Algeria. By 1860, they had been to Mexico, they had been involved in the American Civil War, and then in the 1870s there was the Franco-Prussian War. So their armies are kind of spreading throughout the world and they know that they're not alone. And so exoticism becomes this romanticizing or evoking a place and its customs that is not here or it wasn't in France, wasn't there normal. So in music, it's viewed as some kind of fascinating or attractive or fearsome place and elsewhere it's perceived as being far away and strange in comparison to the everyday habitat of the audience. And so Carmen and Pearl Fishers is full of exoticism, right? Carmen is set, or Carmen herself is a gypsy, right? And so it's set in Bohemian Spain kind of feeling the novel and you have different warring factions. And so the other thing that you have is all of this music that was different sounding to the audience, and that's the music given to Carmen and to Escamillo. So the quintessential example is the Habanera in Act One. It was actually adapted from a cabaret song by a Spanish musician, and Bizet had no idea. He thought it was a folk song, and so he incorporated it thinking it was like a folk song that would make people think of Spanish gypsies. But it was actually a cabaret song that had been composed not that long before the opera. But it becomes this link immediately identifying Carmen as this dangerous sexual female with this exotic sounding music. So here is the habanera. This is our example of exoticism from Carmen. Yes. 
Now, in pearl fishers, there's a lot of exoticism. It's set in this very exotic locale of ancient Ceylon, right, or Sri Lanka. And the exoticism comes into the music in a different way. It's not this kind of overtly sexual seductress or femme fatale, but you have a priestess who is our leading lady whose job it is to kind of pray to the god Brahma to protect the, the people of this pearl fishing village. And so she has an aria in Act 1 where you have a really interesting interplay between her and the chorus where she has slightly bel canto-y sounding lines where they're very florid and a little bit virtuosic, but they're also a little bit uh, chromatic sounding or they are signaling that she's praying in some way. And then the harmony that comes in with the chorus is a little bit unexpected. And so when the chorus answers, it's kind of like, oh, that's different. That's not something I'm used to hearing. And so the interplay between these two things creates this exotic setting for this prayer to a foreign god that she is charged with communicating with. So here is a little bit of that aria. This is Deanna Damrau singing in the recent Met production. Now the second convention is one of my favorites and apparently it was a really important element of French theater that then the theater tradition that bled over into opera, playing with space and place. So this can come about in three ways, juxtaposing spaces and places against each other, maybe moving from one place in the first scene to a completely different place in the second scene or constructing a scene where two things are happening at the same time in two different places, and so they kind of bleed into each other. Also opening and closing spaces, so things like moving from a more open feeling area, like a public space, and then having the scene move into a private space, that is very common. And then also, this one I thought was interesting, spaces and places mirroring motion. There's a harmony between the landscape, between a state of mind, an emotion, and an event. Spaces and places in nature 
are linked metaphorically with the feeling of that moment that's happening in that place in the lives of the characters. So there's this connection. Zurga sings this line where after the storm, he says, the storm has calmed, the wind is dying just as my anger subsides. So a kind of linking of the emotion with the, the physical nature storm. And then there's this opening and closing of space. And so an example that we're not going to watch, but I think is a really beautiful one, is in Gounod's Romeo and Juliet, the balcony scene is really important as a metaphor for the spaces and character trajectories and experience. So Juliet's bedchamber is inaccessible and the balcony is like this suspended middle ground between interior and exterior. At the center, right in the middle of these two spaces, is this dramatic suspended space. And then if you look at different productions, they use this, just like you can see Romeo trying to get up to the balcony, movement between spaces. And also in this current Met production, there's a lot of you know, him trying to get up to her and then coming back down and hiding and then her coming down and going to him. So there's movement between spaces as well. In Carmen, there is public spaces in Act 1, the square in Seville, and this gives way to a closed space in Act 2. Carmen is very seductively trying to get Don Jose to stay with her. There are scenes that are collective spaces that are defined by social relationships, so the cigarette women and the soldiers looking at them, and that's like a collective social space, but they're also discussing their, their perspective of the women in that choral number. And then that's juxtaposed against very private moments with just Carmen and Don Jose. So instead of two groups of people sussing each other out, it's two individual people sussing each other out. And so those two things are juxtaposed against each other. So what I did was I made a little montage. This is about five minutes long, and it's a couple of scenes where I put the two juxtapositions side by side. So this covers a couple of different scenes from Act 1 and 2 of Carmen, but you'll likely recognize a lot of the music from these moments.
popular, and that is offstage sound and sonic overlay. So you, did you notice the bugles are offstage and he says, I think I hear my, my call, we're moving out, I need to go back to my, to my regiment. And then this scene goes on where she basically calls him a coward for suggesting that he could just leave her like that. And she convinces him instead to run away with her to her band of smugglers out in the caves in the mountains. But this is something that French audiences loved, the idea of sonic sound effects to make it sound like things were coming from far away and getting closer and closer and closer until they were there or getting further and further away as something retreated. So also you notice at the beginning of that clip, Don Jose was singing before he got on stage. And then by the time he opens the door, you've heard his voice come closer and closer and closer to Carmen. This is so incredibly French. The French did it all the time in the Romantic period in their opera composing because it was a way of getting special effects without digital crazy technology that we have today. 
it also has dramatic tensions. So in that scene, there's two things going on. There's the calls that he hears and there's Carmen. And it's competing for his attention. He's emotionally torn between the two paths that lay before him. There's love here and now. There's lust here and now depicted on stage. Or there's duty that's calling off stage, off in the distance. And so he is torn between these two spaces. He's torn between two lives, essentially, and he has to make a choice. So there's also the kind of metaphor linking it together. Now, another amazing scene where this type of thing happens is the final scene in Carmen, the very, very final scene. I love this scene. I think it's one of the most amazing moments in opera caught on film, especially with Alina Garancha and Roberto Alagna because it is so tension-packed. They're both just seething with emotions <laughs> with each other. And as this incredibly powerful and intimate thing is happening between the two of them, you have this bullfighting ring that you can hear in the background with Escamillo, who's actually fighting a bull and trying to win, right? And so there's a lot that's been written about how Escamillo, who is Carmen's new lover that she's kind of moved on to after leaving Don Jose, fighting this bull in triumphing is a parallel to what Don Jose is doing to Carmen in that moment, right? Kind of fighting a battle and, and winning by ending her life. And so in this production at the Met, there, it's great because the turntable, you hear the bull fighting, which is in the score, as this sonic offstage underlay, this sonic effect. And then as the final chord comes, the stage turns, and then you see Carmen lying murdered on stage, and you see Escamillo kind of in a tableau posed with a, a triumphant over the bull. And so they kind of make, they drive that metaphor home. This is the first that I know of, that I think most people know of, the first on-stage murder of a woman in the operatic repertoire. So that was also why this opera was so shocking and considered not healthy for the public to see. Laissez-moi, laissez-moi, 
scene and I think that the way it's staged drives home that juxtaposition of spaces kind of back to back and how it, it turns and you see the bolt it's quite quite amazing and that knife shot when he dives at her and the knife hits the stage I've always thought what a brilliant camera angle to capture that and to see the intensity on his face if I was Alina Garancha I would have been terrified <laughs> <laughs> 
The next one is one that I think we're all going to love, and that is the convention of blurring past and present action. And so I like to think of this as the flashback technique, right? So instead of film cutting to like a scene from a character's childhood or where you everything's tinged in like a silvery light so you know they're dreaming about something or remembering something, in opera you do this with music. And so the very famous example of this in Pearl Fishers is that glorious duet with Mariusz Kvichin and Matthew Polanzani where Nadir, who's on the left, and Zurga, they have just been reunited. They have been friends for a long time but separated for several years. And they had this experience in their youth where they saw a beautiful woman and they both fell in love with her. And neither of them got to talk to her, but since they both were so viscerally attracted to her, they decided for the sake of our friendship, neither of us will pursue this woman. Now the rest of the opera is about how one of them didn't keep that promise, right? But them remembering that moment and singing about it and recalling it is this flashback technique. So we're giving a kind of musical flashback where we are drawn into the dream that they are describing or the memory they're describing. So this is Au Fond du Temple Saint, which even if you've never heard Pearl Fisher's performed before, you've probably heard this duet somewhere.
We're going to see more of this next week. So I wanted to kind of plant the seed now so you can think about it this week. That for me, this is one of the most amazing parts of French opera. There's this wonderful juxtaposition of dramatic time versus lyric time. And Carl Dauhaus described this as, in opera, there are two time planes that interact, dramatic time and lyric time. You follow the action, dramatic time, and then you're drawn away from the action by the power of the music, the lyrical quality of it, and what it's telling you. And so Dalhouse said, it's the ability to give a fleeting moment, unreal duration, and hold it fixed for contemplation. So if you think of Romeo and Juliet or Faust or even Don Jose's flower song, it's like for a moment the characters feel this intense burning love, right? And then instead of it being a feeling that then they move on and they, they say it to each other, it takes about 10 seconds. They keep talking about other things. In opera, you take that 10-second feeling and then you draw it out so that you have this spinning out of the emotions that is this fleet, a fleeting moment is given unreal duration, which I think is a really beautiful idea and a beautiful experience. It's why a lot of us go to the opera in the first place. Thank you for being a lovely audience. If you have any questions about anything that we've covered today, please touch base with Stephanie or myself, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you so much. That was our resident opera boot camp instructor, Naomi Baratera. If you live in the New York City area, be sure to catch Naomi live this season here at Lincoln Center in many of our lectures and courses, including our winter boot camp on femme fatales. Go to metguild.org lectures for more info. I'm Stuart Holt, and thanks for listening.